But what resolutions will you make for the new year? When we observe the days of unleavened bread, we determine to put out the old leaven of human nature and replace it with the unleavened divine nature through God's Spirit. How can we ever overcome our human nature? One way is to understand our human nature and to clearly see how our own personality reflects human nature. But often we do not see ourselves clearly. Some of you know about the Scottish national poet of the 18th century, Robert Burns. He described that inability to see ourselves in his poem, To a Louse, verse 8. He said in his Scottish brogue, O woodsome power the gifty gie us, to see ourselves as others see us. Or translated it is, O woodsome power the gift to give us, to see ourselves as others see us. We're currently proofreading the draft text for the May-June Tomorrow's World magazine. Mr. Wallace Smith has written a commentary for that titled, There It Was Right Behind Me. I'll share part of that commentary with you. He tells the story of visiting a local gymnasium. He was struck at seeing himself on the security monitor screen. He writes, quote, I moved my personal effects to the shelf and looked up at the security monitor screen, hooked up to a camera pointed right at my back. It was then that I saw it, coming out of nowhere, right behind me. It was my bald spot. Okay, maybe it's not yet a full-fledged bald spot. Maybe the grass is just a bit thinner on that patch of the lawn. Yep, a bald spot. It occurred to me that although I have only seen it a couple times, my wife has seen it often, as have my children and my neighbors and anyone else who has recently seen the back of my head. Then it struck me, here was something that is always with me, but even though others can see it easily, it is almost impossible for me to see without help, angled mirrors, security cameras, and the like. I was reminded of a verse, a Bible verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. No, we do not all have bald spots, but we all have areas where others can see us better then we can see ourselves. Our own flaws can remain almost invisible to us. Think of the guy when he was told he had bad temper yells, No, I don't. So he goes on to say, There is a way of seeing our own spiritual bald spots. And that's God's word and his law. It can help us to see what we normally cannot, as long as we're willing to act on what he shows us. And then he quotes James 1, verses 23 through 25. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does." So he concludes by saying, maybe you cannot see it, but that does not mean it is not there. Just like the little bald spot on my head, never let your spiritual bald spot catch you off guard. So I want to ask you today, do you have spiritual bald spots? Two weeks from last night, we'll be observing the Passover, the first of seven annual festivals. The annual festivals and holy days reveal God's plan of salvation for all of mankind. 
Very few people on the face of the earth understand that plan. As King David wrote in Psalm 111, verse 10, a good understanding have they that do his commandments. And those who are keeping all seven of the annual festivals understand that plan. So as we observe God's holy days, he gives us understanding of their meaning. The Passover is a time to renew our dedication and our commitment to the Creator, but we need to prepare for the Passover. Are you prepared for the Passover? Several recent sermons should have helped us to prepare, and still can. Dr. Meredith gave a sermon titled, Passover and the Big Picture, and What is Your Spirit Like? Rod McNair gave a sermon on the gift of forgiveness. Then Mr. Charles O'Gwen gave a sermon asking, How does God see us? So these and other sermons should help us see ourselves and help us prepare for the Passover. But there are two scriptures that tell us to examine ourselves. 1 Corinthians 11.28 and 2 Corinthians 13.5. Of course, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, regarding the Passover, the Apostle Paul wrote, For Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Remember that John the Baptist told the multitudes when the Messiah passed by, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was John 1 and verse 29. Let's turn back to Exodus, the 12th chapter. Uh, We'll come to 1 Corinthians 11 here shortly, but Exodus, the 12th chapter, describes the first Passover. Where did the name Passover come from? Exodus, the 12th chapter, verse 23. For the Lord, the Eternal, will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer or permit the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. So there is the pass-through. You probably haven't thought of the pass-through, but it was the destroyer that passed through Egypt and killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. That was the pass-through. But then, of course, there is the Passover. And the destroyer passed over those homes where the blood was on the lintel and on the two doorposts. Let's turn back to uh, 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. So God passes over our sins, that is, when we have repented and when we have accepted the blood of the Lamb. 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul describes the symbols of the New Testament Passover, the bread and wine. And then in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, or warns us, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. It's a pretty sobering warning. But of course, he's saying here in an unworthy manner. What does he mean by that? Well, he tells us in verse 28, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So in verse 28, the Apostle Paul says, Let a man examine himself. One of the major ways to prepare for the Passover is to examine oneself. We don't like to normally do that. What questions should we ask ourselves, and how should we examine ourselves? The title of the sermon is Self-Examination. 
As we know, only baptized members will be taking the Passover, but I want to encourage you teenagers to also examine yourself. You can set goals for the coming year, and you can see how you can grow, you can overcome, you can change, and you can develop. By the way, we appreciate our teenagers and the service they give us to the congregation, to the work. We appreciate the children, and they contribute in the youth choir and in other ways as well. 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, and verse 31 is a verse I hope you have marked in your Bible. Certainly very important for Passover preparation, but very important in our general life. If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. We're very keen on judging others, condemning others, very quick to criticize others, but do we ever judge ourselves? We have to get that beam out of our own eye before we help the speck out of our brother's eye. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. God lets our own mistakes correct us. Sometimes he has special hands-on to correct us so that we won't uh, go astray and be uh, lost forever. So we need to appreciate what God has done in the past year if indeed he has corrected us. So are you judging everyone else, or are you, are you judging yourself? We all have that tendency to judge others. And are you aware of your spiritual bald spot? Are you aware of a spiritual blind spot? Now, how many of you, well, let me just tell you that you do have a blind spot in your eye. It's right at the point where the, um, the cable, whatever the cable is, uh, connects to the back of the retina. And you can do it. Just take a, uh, I don't want you to do it right now, necessarily. But if you put, line up your eye on a piece of paper, put on a dot for your right eye, then line up your left eye and put a dot on the paper, and then cover your, one of the eyes, and you'll see if your blind spot is correctly lined up with that dot, that dot will disappear. It will show you that you have a blind spot in your eye. Well, there are spiritual blind spots. And many of us have spiritual blind spots. We don't see them. And sometimes it takes someone else or it takes uh, some circumstance to help us to see those blind spots and those bald spots. As Mr. Wallace said in his commentary, if we look into the perfect law of liberty into God's mirror, uh, we can see more, more perfectly our spiritual bald spots and blind spots. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 13.5. This is the Second scripture that tells us to examine ourselves, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, a very strong verse, similar to 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. The Apostle Paul writes, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. So when we examine ourselves for the Passover, one of the questions we should ask ourselves is, are we in the faith? Well, what is the faith? Well, it's the faith of the truth, the faith of the Bible, the faith that God teaches us from Genesis to Revelation. Are we in that faith? Are we in the truth? Are we in the body of Christ? He goes on to say in verse 5, test your own selves, prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves? And of course, he was writing to a Greek congregation, the church at Corinth, and uh, 
even then uh, they knew the old uh, statement by Socrates, know thyself, the unexamined life is not worth living. That was a classic quote from Socrates who lived in about the 5th century B.C. So they knew that, know thyself. And the Apostle Paul's capitalizing that on that in this particular instance. Know not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates or except you be... Um, What is it in the New King James? Uh, this uh, disallowed, I believe it is. So here we need to know ourselves, and many of us have taken various inventories and and tests and aptitude tests, personality profile analysis. And if you haven't, perhaps to, you need to uh, take some of those to learn more about yourselves. Uh, engage couples. We uh, sometimes, as ministers, uh, give the prepare and enrich inventory. And it helps young couples to see uh, strong relationships and see weak relationships in about 12 different areas, all the way from finances to relationships to child-rearing uh, to religion. And, of course, most cases for our people, uh, religion is 100% uh, relational strength. But uh, we can learn more about ourselves. And uh, sometimes uh, it takes a video recording or an audio recording to hear ourselves. As uh, Mr. O'Gwyn uh, said recently, he was talking about his sermon. He was listening here, I believe, in the, in the building, and he heard this sermon coming out from the duplicating room, and he said, hmm, that voice sounds familiar. Oh, yeah, that's me. And he didn't recognize his own voice. And so sometimes uh, we get different perspectives, and it's always good to see yourself on video if you haven't. Um, of course, you don't want to be on YouTube. I mentioned that a couple weeks ago, how that is actually affecting behaviors of Americans all over the country. And they think, should I do this or should I not? Because who knows, I may be on YouTube and it changes their behavior. It's an amazing phenomenon that is happening around the country. And we should be thinking of that. You know, is God looking at me now? What am I, what am I saying? What am I doing? What am I thinking? Is anyone listening to me? Is anyone seeing what I'm doing right now? It could uh, make a change in your behavior. So we need to examine ourselves, as we see here in, in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. And in the remainder of the sermon, I will attempt to cover ten ways to examine ourselves. Uh, some of them are going to have to be uh, brushed by very quickly. I'll probably spend more time on this first one, which is extremely important. In preparing for the Passover, examine yourself with the attitude of repentance. Have you repented of your sins? Ask yourself that question. Have you deeply committed yourself to maintain a repentant attitude for the remainder of your life? Have you ever said you're sorry about anything? Have you ever admitted any sin? Let's say even the last year or the last week or the last month. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, 2 Corinthians 7, just back a few pages where we are in 2 Corinthians 12. Remember, the first epistle, the Apostle Paul was strongly correcting the Corinthian church because of their tolerant attitude towards uh, grievous perversion and sin within the congregation. And he thought he'd been too strong 
But as a, as a result, the congregation did repent and change, and he was pleased with their change in behavior. So he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but you sorrowed to repentance. So there are different kinds of sorrow. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. It's going to have a lasting benefit. But the sorrow of the world works death. How many prisoners on death row say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. They're sorry they're caught. They're sorry they're going to have to die and pay a penalty. But they're not sorry that they murdered a friend or murdered a, a stranger. That's the sorrow of the world that worked death. If they were in the same situation, they would do exactly the same thing. That's the sorrow of the world. But godly sorrow actually affects a change in attitude and a change in behavior and a change in character, as he brings out here in verse 11. For behold, the selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what earnestness it wrought in you. That is an earnestness to clear yourselves. Yes, what indignation. There's a righteous indignation. And some of our world, most of our world, because of the media about us, we get hardened, we get inured to the evils and wickedness of the world, and we just accept it, rather than re getting upset at it and getting angry at it. I remember uh, Dr. Meredith in one of the public Bible lectures in the auditorium years ago gave an attack speech, and it was attacking specific uh, evils in our world. I don't recall exactly what evils he was attacking, whether it was sexual perversion or whether it was the uh, fraud in our government and whatever. And we need to, we have an attack speech, of course, in our um, Ambassador and Spokesman Club manual. We need to be indignant about the evils of this world. And God attacks evils as well. He labels it as sin, labels it as evil, labels it as wickedness, as you've heard us do on the telecast and in our writings. What alarm what vehement desire or longing, what diligence, what vindication, what zeal, what concern, what revenge. So when we look at ourselves, have we borne those fruits of godly sorrow as opposed to the worldly sorrow? Have we made any changes in our lives? So look at yourself with regard to repentance. I won't turn there, but remember what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees and Sadducees who came to his baptism. He said in Matthew 3, 7, Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits fitting for repentance. Can you see changes in your life because you've repented of certain habits or behaviors or attitudes? Have you brought forth fruits fitting for repentance? Years ago, when China was afflicted with incredible poverty, and, of course, even Major uh, por portions of the population have that affliction now. But I remember a minister asked, have you ever shed a tear for China? And I could ask the same question today. Have you shed a tear for Darfur or the starving people in Africa or India or any of the oppressed anywhere around the world? Have you even shed a tear in 2007 or 2008? Or do you have a hardened heart? Can you be upset by the evils in this world?
And if you aren't, uh, if you have a hardened heart, ask God for a spirit of repentance. Let's turn to 1 John, the first chapter. 1 John 1. As we prepare for the Passover, we need to think in terms of having a repentant attitude. Here in 1 John 1, in verse 9, a very encouraging promise from God. If we confess our sins, that is to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So some of you may have guilt feelings. How do you handle those guilt feelings? You first of all have to identify what is the source of that guilt. And if you identify that source, well, you can I acknowledge your sin or your wrong attitude, take it to God, confess it, say, Father in heaven, I've had an angry attitude towards my brother here, the church or a sister, or I said something with uh, uncontrollable anger at one time, I'm sorry, forgive me. But part, of course, of the repentance and the confession must be an attitude of change. I want to change. I don't want to be a, an uncontrollably angry person. I want to change. We need to be angry at sin, of course, but we need to confess our sins. It's a wonderful promise that God has given us. So we acknowledge our sin. We express sorrow for our sin. We ask forgiveness for our sins, and we determine to change our life and resist temptation with our whole, be uh, whole being. Let's turn to Hebrews 12 and verse 3. Hebrews 12 and verse 3. Here's the correction with love chapter, as uh, we can also describe it. Wonderful first uh, couple verses. But have you really resisted against sin? Hebrews 12 and verse 3. For consider him that endured such contradiction or hostility of sinners against himself, referring to the Messiah, Christ, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Remember what he went through, what he experienced, how he was oppressed and beaten and crucified. Verse 4, talking to us individually, yet have you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Some of you are so addicted that you just give in and you haven't striven to the point of blood. Christ sweated blood, you know, in agony when he prayed the night before. So have we resisted unto blood? And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as children. My son, despise not you the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. And I've been rebuked by God and almost fainted, but God says, don't faint when you're corrected. You should take it as encouragement and understand that that correction is an, exemplar, uh, is an example of God's love. Verse 6, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. It may be a powerful whipping. But if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chastens not? So let's examine ourselves toward the idea of correction. What is your attitude toward correction? Have you hardened your heart? Or are you teachable? We need to be committed before the Passover to always maintain a teachable and a repentant attitude. That's number one. 
So I've got number one of the ten uh, discussed. Number two is what we heard in the sermonette. Examine yourself with respect to your prayer pattern and your daily life in prayer. During this past year, have you let a day go by without praying? Let one day, one full day without praying. If you did, you had another God before the true God. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, God says in Exodus, the 20th chapter. Something was more important for you in that day than to get on your knees before God and acknowledge him as the creator, as the one who gives you life and breath. I hope if you did let a day go by without praying, that you transgress that first commandment, you'll repent of it. And you'll think about changing your life and establishing a new pattern of prayer. Remember, King David prayed three times a day. Psalm fifty-five, seventeen, Evening, morning, and at noon, David said, I will cry aloud to you. And then, of course, Daniel prayed three times a day on his knees. That was to Daniel 6 and verse 10. And then, of course, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. It says, pray without ceasing. In other words, always be in a state of prayer. You know, I remember one time driving along with a friend. I was riding as a passenger, and he was talking to me as he's driving along, and he didn't see the car stopped in front of him, and I prayed quick, help! That was my prayer. I was instant in prayer. And so I think we all have been in experiences and situations like that from time to time, but we need to always be in an attitude of prayer and thanking God throughout the day, praying to him about anything and everything. Uh, Some have told me in the past, I don't know what to pray about. (laughs) Uh, are you alive? I wonder. Uh, we just uh, I said, well, I tell those individuals, well, just take the Bible, oopsie, and uh, take a cup of tea while you're at it. Mm. I shouldn't tell you this. I should. <laughs> you know, our our song leader was so skilled, and I think it was. Uh, somewhat of a miracle, uh, Mr. Jerry Ruddleston was leading our church choir in San Diego, and uh, he had a little baton, and we had a metal music stand like that, and he was leading the choir, and the baton hit the metal stand, and that baton went twirling up in the air, and he caught it without any motion and continued, (laughs) and I have, have never seen anything like that in my life. Well, I hope Mr. Ruddleston doesn't mind my sharing that, but it shows uh, either a great skill or a miracle occurred at that particular <laughs> point in time. But we need to follow the outline prayer. We heard about that uh, in the sermonette. We need to pray for one another, as it says in James 5.16, pray one for another that you may be healed. And then there's the acronym, A-S-K, ask, seek, and knock, as he says in Matthew 7. And verse 7, do you have family prayer? I know my wife and I pray together, and uh, not as regularly perhaps as we should, but uh, we did together at the beginning of the Sabbath last evening. And uh, sometimes I'll start off the prayer, and then I'll just nudge her, and she'll pray, and then I'll close the prayer. And I know uh, one fellow evangelist uh, some years ago said, well, he didn't pray with his wife, and I was a little puzzling to me, uh, both in the church. So I do hope that you, as 
you're both in the church, husband and wife, that you do pray together uh, from time to time. And of course, I hope that you're teaching your children to pray. I covet the prayers of little children. I know God hears their prayers. And uh, I thank God for them. But if you don't know what to pray about, just get the Bible out and uh, on your knees, put it on the bed, and start reading the Bible, and you will have something to pray about. You'll have material, never-ending material to pray about. And then, of course, start thanking God. If you don't know what to pray about, start counting your blessings. Thank God about everything you can think about, because he has blessed us far beyond our own imagination and what we realize. Just uh, think about the times God has blessed you this past year in your prayers. God has saved me from accidents numerous times. Not that I've, I've been in accidents, and my wife and I did have a boating accident. It was uh, uh, We were there in Barbados, and uh, we're coming in on a catamaran, and, and not, unbeknownst to us, there was a huge wave coming behind us. It was very stormy seas. And uh, the captain of the catamaran saw this wave coming. I wonder, why is he rushing us up uh, against the beach so quickly? And uh, just before we got to the beach, the catamaran turned, flipped over, and I thought this crashing on me uh, didn't get a scratch on me. But my wife uh, had the boom of the, uh, the sail hit her right in the chin, and she's still recovering somewhat from that. But uh, it could have been tremendously worse. It could have. Uh, broken her jaw, could have, uh, you know, cut her neck or whatever. So God protected us, and perhaps God has protected you this past year. Think about what God has done for you this past year. He's healed me, he's blessed me, and he's blessed you. So we can approach the Passover with a positive attitude, thanking God for his blessings this past year. And uh, as you heard in the sermonette, with the... uh, Booklet that's available, of course, uh, even on the telecast tomorrow morning, Overcoming Satan, that is the booklet offer, 12 Keys to Answered Prayer. Be sure to request your free copy if you haven't already. So number two is to examine your prayer life. Are you not seeking God through prayer? Prayer is your lifeline to God. And if you need need help, you can ask uh, your friends, your family or the ministry, but if you've been inconsistent, lazy, and Laodicean in your prayer life, repent and get on your knees every morning and cry out to God for help. Tells us in Hebrews 4.16, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, realizing that God is there. He wants to hear your voice. He wants to hear your prayer. It's a throne of grace, of his favor. And it says, and that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So number two is to examine yourself toward your prayer life. Of course, number three, you can guess, Bible study. Do you read the Bible daily? The Bible reveals the mind of God and it reveals the great mysteries that famous philosophers can only speculate about, and they speculate wildly, and they have no clue as to the real purpose and meaning of life. And you do. God has revealed it, as he says in 1 Corinthians 2, through his Spirit, yes, the deep things of God. That's understanding that is priceless. The world is basically crazy because it doesn't even know 
the simple purpose for which mankind has been created. 2 Timothy 2, or verse 15, we can turn there. And I think you know that scripture basically by heart. And, of course, 3.16 talks about the inspiration of the scriptures, that they are, in the Greek, theonoustos, God breathed, which is actually one of the translations. 1 Timothy 2, verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How can you rightly divide the word of truth if you don't even read it? Or study it. So I encourage you to read the Bible regularly and daily, and of course, even to take our Tomorrow's World Bible Study course. It was April 1st, uh, just a year ago, that we went online with the Bible Study online uh, course. And some students were so zealous, uh, Mr. O'Gwin, that they were completing the 24 lesson course in less than a week. Is that correct? He's saying yes. So how zealous are you? Here's someone online with our computer on the Bible study course completed 24 lessons in less than a week. Probably stayed up 24 hours a day doing it. I don't know. Or just took the test and didn't read anything. But uh, nonetheless, there are people who are zealous and who want to know the truth, want to know more what the Bible says and are trying to prove it. Uh, We have, uh, I believe it's 91 countries on the Uh, online Bible study course uh, students. We have more than that in the uh, hard copy of the Bible study course. The last one was Malta. Of course, the Apostle Paul visited Malta. So, as Mr. Crockett said, we are back to Malta. We do have the hard copy version, and I encourage you to take the four-in-one lessons. As you know, uh, as I've shared with you before, and I'm still trying to do that, that when I get home from work, or after refreshing from a workout at the YMCA, I normally get sit in a chair by the fireplace and open the Bible and read the Bible for a few minutes because I feel that's important to begin the evening, even though sunset is much later now. But I still, maybe around 6 o'clock or 6.30, will sit in that chair and I'll read the Bible. And oftentimes my wife notices and she comes and sits on my lap and joins me reading the Bible. And I find that to be a pleasurable experience. But we do need to take time for serious Bible study and research. And uh, you might want to consider using some of your festival tithe for some Bible study aids. Uh, New Unger's Bible Dictionary, for example, is an excellent uh, Bible dictionary. Or you might want to buy an interlinear, or you might want to buy some software for those of you who have uh, computer uh, savvy. Remember what Jesus said in John 6.63, The words that I have spoken unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So examine your commitment to reading the Scriptures. Remember the Bereans in Acts 17 and verse 10. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. As we do on the telecast and in our publications, we challenge our viewers and readers to check up in their own Bibles, and not to believe us, but believe their own Bibles. So number three, examine your commitment to read the Scriptures. Number four is fasting. Some of these are difficult. 
when was the last time you fasted without food and water? Was it on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur? If you're a committed Christian, you have fasted since that annual fast day. Let's turn to Matthew, the ninth chapter, Matthew 9, starting with verse 14. The disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Matthew 9, verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then will they fast. So if you have not fasted since the Day of Atonement, I certainly would encourage you to consider fasting before the Passover. He continues there in verse 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So what is the message that Jesus is teaching here? The message is that fasting is a ritual will not produce lasting changes. It must come with a change of heart and with an attitude of teachability and an attitude of humility. Let's turn to Isaiah 58. You know the spiritual application of fasting. The prophet Isaiah is castigating his audience because they are fasting for strife and debate. There are people who fast for days, go on a hunger strike. It's a political fast, not one of humility and teachability and repentance. But he says in verse 6, Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, when you see the naked that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall bring, break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Eternal will answer. You shall call, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noon day. What frees people from psychological slavery? The truth. As Jesus said in John 8:32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And the truth that is going out through the Tomorrow's World telecast and publications has freed thousands and perhaps hundreds of thousands of their deception, their slavery to myths and deception. The truth shall make you free. There are those who think that their relatives, their sinful relatives, are now in agony, burning in an ever-burning hellfire, being tormented. The truth makes them free from that deception because they aren't burning in hell. There's no one alive in hell. Hell is the grave. There is a burning lake of fire that is going to burn up the incorrigibly wicked, at the end of God's plan, but that's after the millennium. 
So examine yourself with respect to fasting. If you've not fasted since the Day of Atonement, consider fasting before Passover and remember Isaiah's spiritual approach to fasting. That was number four. Number five is love for the brethren. Sometimes we take this for granted because we're fellowshipping here with one another every week. But I think in general, God's people are doing a pretty good job of expressing love towards one another. We pray for one another. We encourage one another through the greeting cards that you all sign. And often we hear from our brethren who are sick and ill. Mr. Stevenson was mentioning to us in the hospital that he's gotten cards from all over the world that have been just so encouraging. So God's people all over the world do show that kind of care, that kind of concern. But we have to ask ourselves individually, have we expressed that kind of love? John 13, 35, you know that one, where Jesus says this is a characteristic of the true church. And, of course, visitors and others can say, oh, I saw that carnal person there. It can't be God's church. Well, the Apostle Paul corrected strongly the carnal Corinthian church. He said, you are yet carnal. It was still God's church. That's why he strongly corrected it. And that's why you read in Revelation 2 and 3 where Christ strongly corrects the Pergamos church and the Thyatira church because they had Jezebel there teaching them to commit fornication because they had the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And Christ strongly corrected them, but they were still nominally the church of God. Of course, we know that the spiritual body of Christ is those in 1 Corinthians 12, by one spirit are you baptized into one body. So while there's a corporate church of God, there is also the spiritual body of which is comprised of converted Christians. And you need to make sure that you're one of them. Here in John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you love one another. You say, well, no one loves me. Well, you have to make sure that you are the one who is doing the loving. First John 3, verse 16. Um, Dr. Meredith has often pointed out John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16, uh, very similar in uh, nature. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Verse 17, 1 John 3. But whoso has this world's good, and sees his brother have need, and shuts up his heart of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And here we have two ways of loving the brethren. One, by having compassion, we have emotional ties and feelings to those who are hurt, or those who are needy, and at the same time, we see another way of loving them, by giving of our physical goods, if we have the opportunity and way of giving. So have you expressed that kind of love towards the brethren, giving of your physical goods, praying for another, one another, uh, forgiving one another, as we heard in the sermon recently? and particularly as we approach the Passover, as we heard in the sermonette and the outline prayer. Are you compassionate? Do you, can you feel for the pain and suffering of others? Do you have the attitude of a servant that you're trying to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? And you're applying 1 Corinthians 13, 
Greater love is no man than this. Of course, is John fifteen thirteen. Yet um, a man lay down his life for his friends. But charity suffers long. Love is patient. Love is kind. And you give of your time to help others. So, number five, examine yourself with respect for brotherly love. Love one another fervently, it says in 1 Peter 1, verse 22. I might just see that turn over a few pages. 1 Peter 1 and verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, yes, we have to be obedient, obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Go on to number six in examining ourselves for the Passover, and that's progress in overcoming. The days of unleavened bread teach us the need to overcome our human nature, the world around us, the influence of the world, and the influence of Satan. So have you made any progress this past year in overcoming any of those three? Remember, he said, in, well, let's turn there, 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. Go back there to uh, the Passover chapter, Days of Unleavened Bread chapter. 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. The Apostle Paul gives the symbolism of leaven and unleavened bread. 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. Here he says in verse 8, Therefore, let us keep the feast. It's a New Testament command to a Gentile church to keep the annual festivals of the Bible. Not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. So leaven in this case is a type of sin. It's a type of human nature. Leaven, the leaven of malice and wickedness, and in a sense replace it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, you're replacing human nature with God's divine nature. And he tells us in 2 Peter 1, verse 4, that we are partakers of his divine nature. And his nature is love. He says that love is shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit which is given unto us in Romans 5 and verse 5. So we need to pray that God is shedding his love in our hearts and minds, and in our character. So we find here then that we examine ourselves with the progress of overcoming. Are we more uh, carnal than we were last year? Or are we more spiritual than we were last year? Are we more kind or more harsh? Are we more serving or more getting? More loving or more giving? But we need to ask ourselves those questions. 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, uh, just right after this, tells us what kinds of behaviors are going to prevent you from being in God's kingdom. Verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So we again need to examine ourselves. Well, I'm not that way. 
Well, maybe you haven't physically participated in those sins, but have you mentally participated in any of those sins? Or have you been tempted? Well, we are. We're all tempted. Let's understand that the temptation itself is not sin. Jesus had the worst possible thought that could come into one's mind when Satan said, bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Can you think of a a worse, horrible, sinful thought than to worshiping Satan? Of course, Jesus said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. See, Jesus immediately replaced that evil temptation with a righteous, godly thought And that's from the Scriptures. But think of yourselves in terms of overcoming. He again compliments the the church here in one sense, and such were some of you. You're talking about perversion here. Here were people who were perverts, who were wicked, who were evil, and yet they had repented, they'd been forgiven, they were washed by the as he says here, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So ask yourself, have you grown spiritually this past year? Again, let's turn to First Corinthians, Second Corinthians 13.5. I didn't read all of that verse last time. Second Corinthians 13 and verse 5. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Again, are you directly in the faith? Are you embracing the truth? Or are you out on the twigs arguing with some of the basic doctrines of the Bible? Prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be disqualified. Do you know yourselves? Is Christ in you? We heard in the sermonette, uh, Ephesians 3.17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Colossians 1 talks about the mystery of the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In John, the 15th chapter, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. And it's through God's Spirit that Christ dwells in us, that even God the Father dwells in us, and he abides with us, and we're to abide in him. That's a spiritual mystery that the world does not understand. But it's the way of overcoming. It's the way of conquering and having victories, spiritual victories in your life. If you don't know what to believe, then you can, I guess, a suggestion, read our official statement of fundamental beliefs and check the references in the Bible. Do you even know what you believe? I think most of our old-timers, of course, do. But I challenged the congregation on this question some years ago, and several of you and others in other congregations sent me writings of their essays on what I believe. Sometimes we have a, a little conviction. It's just a tiny little belief. We're not really convicted. Sometimes we have to live along several years before we are convicted of a particular truth of the Bible. But do you know what you believe? Remember what uh, John wrote in 1 John. He said, Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So we might believe God exists, but I can ask you, well, how strong is your belief? Do you know God exists? And do you know that you know God exists? 
Well, that's what it says in 1 John 1. Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So you need to examine yourself to know what do you believe. And if you are questioning certain doctrines, that's fine, as long as it's an open question and not a rebellious kind of a question. And if you need help to prove it, we have a personal correspondence department, which you heard of the announcements uh, that uh, Mr. Amon is responding to with about 1,600 responses. Uh, some of those are uh, taken care of, not those, but others are taken care of by our data entry department when people ask various questions that are standard, that are frequently asked questions. But I hope that you know what you believe and have you made progress in overcoming and fulfilling your responsibilities. I won't turn there, but Ephesians 5, some of you know, gives the responsibilities of wife towards her husband. Husband, love your wives. Can you husband say, yes, I've examined myself, and I do love my wife, and I have shown her that love. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord. Can you wives say, yes, I'm fulfilling my God-given responsibilities as a wife and as a husband or as a, as a child, as a parent? Am I honoring my father and my mother? Am I showing love towards my children? Ephesians 6, of course, gives those responsibilities too, even of masters and servants, that you're to serve your master with, with fear and trembling, with the, as unto Christ and not unto man. So what lessons have you learned this past year? Have you made progress in overcoming? Are you learning deep lessons? As you know, I try to keep uh, my little lessons and my little week at a glance. And at the back of page here, I have my first lesson for 2008 is to review the lessons of 2007. So I won't share with you the other uh, personal lessons that I've learned here. But again, Calvin and Hobbes uh, gives that illustration of learning lessons. And uh, I hope that you're not like this, but we need to, again, take a look at Calvin's attitude in this case, whether he wanted to learn a lesson or not. Have you learned any major lessons this past year? Serious lessons that are part of your character and now you're living a way of life that is different? Hobbes is uh, pushing little Calvin in the little red wagon. And Calvin is saying, it's true, Hobbes, ignorance is bliss. And they start going through the woods and they're traveling and and Hobbes gets in the red wagon with them, so they're going down the hill, winding through the woods. And uh, Calvin says, once you know things, you start seeing problems everywhere. And once you see problems, you feel like you ought to try to fix them. And fixing problems always seems to require personal change. And change means doing things that aren't fun. I say fooey to that. They start going down the hill and they're starting to pick up speed in the little red wagon with the Calvin in the front and Hobbes in the back holding on. But then Calvin says, looking back at Hobbes, but if you're willfully stupid, you don't know any better, so you can keep doing whatever you like. Isn't that the philosophy of the world? Be willfully stupid so you can do whatever you want. There are no moral guidelines. There are no... Uh, spiritual laws that you have to abide by. Just be willfully stupid, and you do anything you want. Well, they're picking up speed, and Calvin says another gem. 
The secret to happiness is short-term stupid self-interest. Another gem. Then Hobbes is saying, we're heading for the cliff. And Calvin covers his eyes and says, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> so they go off the cliff, and of course stars, and they're all on the ground. And uh, Hobbes says, I'm not sure I can stand so much bliss. <laughs> and Calvin says, careful, we don't want to learn anything from this. You know, we've had in our telecast and in our magazines the lessons of history. And those who refuse to learn the lessons are condemned to repeat the sins and the problems of the past. And I hope that you and I are learning lessons from our own mistakes, from our own pain, but more importantly, to learn them from the mistakes of others so we don't have to experience them. So number six in summary, examine yourself with respect to spiritual growth and overcoming. Consider committing yourself to overcome specific weaknesses and flaws. Set goals for this next year and thank God for any growth and spiritual progress God gave you. Number seven is growing in the new covenant. Let's turn to Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, and I see we're going to only get through seven of the ten. But... Uh, those of you who want to know the other three can uh, come in the other room for another hour, and I'll help you with that. <laughs> Jeremiah 31 and 31. Well, here is the prophecy of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, starting with uh, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Eternal, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Eternal. I will put my laws in their minds, verse 33, and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Eternal. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's a prophecy for tomorrow's world. When the physical houses of Judah and the physical houses of Israel will be taught the new covenant... And they will come back, as you know, in Ezekiel, the 36th chapter, from the Great Tribulation, loathing themselves. And they will be in a deep, repentant attitude, and they will be ready to be taught the ways of God. Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 quote Jeremiah 31. And Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 applies to Christians today. We are pioneers of the New Covenant. Jesus instituted the New Covenant at the Passover. And God is writing his laws on our hearts and minds if we want him to. And if we're learning the lessons that we should be learning. As he instituted that new, that new covenant, we need to be asking ourselves, are we keeping the Ten Commandments? Are they part of our nature? Have we internalized any of the Ten Commandments? Do we honor our parents? Both my parents are 
deceased, but I still think of them, that I still want to honor them by my life and how I conduct my life even now, so that when I see them in the resurrection, they will know that I have honored them. At the same time, I want to honor my spiritual Father in heaven. And I want to honor the new Jerusalem above, the mother of us all, by my life. So are you faithful to your spiritual Father in heaven? Are you applying the seven laws, seven laws of success, yes, and the ten commandments in your own heart and mind? Do you steal, cheat, or lie? Apply the positive law of love and repent of any of those sins and realize there are the spiritual applications of all Ten Commandments as Jesus magnified them in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So in summary, meditate on God's law. You are pioneers of the new covenant. Ask God to help you to apply the Ten Commandments, loving Him and loving your neighbor. Remember David said in Psalm 1 that his law, his commandments were his meditation all the day. And in Psalm 199, verse 199, 119, verse 97, David said, Oh, how love I your law. It is my meditation all the day. So consider your participation in the new covenant. Consider your obedience to the Ten Commandments. Examine yourself with respect to each of the Ten Commandments as you approach the Passover two weeks from last night. In conclusion, what will be the result of your self-examination? As a result of your self-examination, I hope that you will see your human nature more clearly and the need to overcome it. I hope you will see your shortcomings and your flaws and that you will identify weaknesses to overcome. You'll see your inadequacies and you'll see your need for a Savior. So it says in John 15, 5, Jesus said, Without me, you can do nothing. That is, you can do nothing lasting. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11th chapter and closing. 1 Corinthians 11th chapter. Again, we see the Passover and the instruction. The result of self-examination is that, as I've emphasized before, is that we should take the Passover. Some have wrongly in the past said, oh, well, I'm not worthy to take the Passover. I'm such a rotten sinner, etc., etc., etc. Well, yes, you have been a rotten sinner, but if you are repentant, then you need to take the Passover. And you need to take it in faith. As he says here, verse 28, 1 Corinthians 11, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. The result of self-examination is to take the Passover, not to avoid the Passover. So, brethren, be thankful for God's intervention in your life this past year. Recount the many times that He's saved your life, protected you, healed you, taught you, corrected you, blessed you. Be thankful for God's mercy toward you, realizing that you deserve much more correction than perhaps you received. And as a result of your self-examination... I hope you will have seen character flaws, character weaknesses, and that you have fallen far short of your goals, your responsibilities, and your progress in overcoming. And as a result of seeing those inadequacies, you will then more deeply appreciate God's patience 
with you and his mercy. You will then desire more earnestly to take the Passover. So after you've examined yourself, take the Passover in faith. Take the Passover with deep appreciation for the blood that cleanses you from all sin. And take the Passover with deep commitment to grow in grace this coming year. And pray as King David did in Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me.